Good morning and welcome. From Waterbury, Vermont, it's WDEV and it's Vermont Viewpoint and I am your host, Kevin Ellis. Thank you for joining us. It's Friday, October 27th and what a week it's been. We will return to the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza and the Middle East this morning. You will recall we have heard from a number of experts on this issue, a former U.S. ambassador, an Israeli citizen, and a Palestinian on this issue, not to mention many of you who have been weighing in on this tough, tough issue. We'll speak today with an expert on the region from Washington, D.C., the former foreign policy advisor to Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, a guy named Matt Duss, who writes and speaks widely on the subject, and uh, he is everywhere now, and we have him uh, in our first hour. At 10, we will visit our Washington expert, Bob Nay. We'll talk about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Bob will have the inside story on that. We'll ask Bob why it's important and what it means that someone named Mike Johnson from Louisiana is now second in line to the presidency. At 10.15, we'll visit with Seven Days reporters about their issue this week, and uh, which uh, we talked about earlier on the Wednesday show, but we'll continue that. We'll wrap at 10.30 with more talk about Wheels for Warmth. The uber boss of Wheels for Warmth, Richard Wabi, will be here to give us the inside information on that. As always, the number to call is 802 244 1777. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I'm Kevin Ellis. First, a review of the week's news. In Vermont, it is not uh, normal that the governor of the state of Vermont attends the Barry City Council meeting, but Phil Scott did that on Tuesday alongside several top administration officials to unveil a massive redevelopment proposal for the north end of the city that was walloped during this summer's catastrophic statewide flooding. Unusual, yes, but the governor unveiled what he called a a tentative uh, proposal to uh, take down in the north end of Barrie to take down several of the homes on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Streets that were ruined in the flood. And uh, part of that proposal is to make a park to allow floodwaters in the future to flow through. Uh, Drawings presented to the council, uh, presented by Montpelier Architecture Firm Black River Design, uh, reveal a completely transformed North End neighborhood. They they envisioned demolishing most homes and apartment buildings along a five-block stretch from the intersection of North Main and Beckley Streets to 5th Street, really hurt by flooding, uh, to make way for a large park. A mix of new construction, including high-rise and mid-rise buildings and single-family homes, would be built on the new park's outskirts, including an eight-story, 80-unit residential building between 5th and 6th Streets. So, if fully realized, the proposal would remove 92 existing housing units and replace them with 225 new homes and apartments. Uh, there was some t- discussion around this. The governor emphasized that this uh, is a very preliminary proposal. He invited uh, input. Uh, the city council uh, thanked him for coming. But then yesterday I read an editorial uh, by, I assume, the publisher Steve Pappas in the Times Argus 
which uh, really criticized the, well, the entire city of Barrie and the city council for its lukewarm reception uh, to the governor. Uh, he he said it was an outright embarrassment to the city of Barrie and the city council for the way they treated the governor's proposal. Um, and uh, one, the, the, the main plus of the governor's proposal, according to the governor himself, is that this would allow Barry and the state to work with Senator Bernie Sanders to access millions and millions of dollars in federal money to basically redevelop the entire north end of Barry. There was some concern about if you're going to demolish that many homes in the north end, where are those people going to go live for the two, three, four years that it takes to rebuild this uh, neighborhood? So, uh, the, take a look at that, uh, editorial by Steve Pappas in the, in the Times Argus. Karen Paul is running for mayor of Burlington. She is a Democrat. That makes two women running for mayor of Burlington. The other is Emma Mulvaney Stanek. She's a progressive in the Bernie Sanders mold. She has been on this show. I've already sent an email to Karen Paul asking her to come on the show. Stay tuned for that. Uh, lastly in Vermont, a, a U32 bus stopped at a railroad crossing was shot from the direction of, of a semi-homelessness camp uh, right next to the bike path across from the Agway. Uh, what happened there is still being investigated by state police, and we'll get you more details as that uh, unfolds. Uh, we are going to return after the break to, after our first break, we're going to return to Israel and Hamas um, and, and I, I, I want to be, I want to read my, the caveats that I have in place every time I do this. Uh, I urge you to consult a map online as we go through this to understand the geography of this situation and understand how close people live to each other and check out a tiny place called Gaza, which is about half the size of New York City, uh, as I, as I believe I heard uh, Howard Dean say today, it's about the size. It's about the distance between Burlington and Montpelier. Two point three million people, half of them children. My other caveat, as I said before, I will I will I will do something wrong about this issue. I will get it wrong on vocabulary, on history, on religion or culture. Any mistakes are mine, of course, but they are not intentional. There is no taking sides here. Our goal is understanding and listening. I understand that there are centuries of work and religion and culture going on here. Our goal is to understand it as best we can. With that, get out your maps, and we'll be right back with uh, the former former uh, foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders, Matt Duss. After this break, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We are back, and we are returning to Israel and Gaza. We have heard, as you all know, from the former U.S. ambassador to Syria, an Israeli citizen from northern Israel, and a Palestinian whose family lives in Gaza. To help us continue learning about this really tough issue, we are joined by Matt Duss. He's the executive vice president of the Center for International Policy in Washington and a former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. Matt Duss, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, 
Can I start with the statement that Bernie Sanders put out, I believe, yesterday, which would be really the third statement he's put out on this. It is, uh, and he took to the Senate floor to to read it. Um, I have the prepared remarks, uh, and it 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 repeats what he has said previously. Israel has a right to defend itself. He condemns the attack by Hamas in uh, earlier this month, but urges uh, the Israelis to practice restraint, respect for international law, and then he goes further and he. Uh, lists, he bullet points a list of questions that he believes should be answered uh, before there is a ground invasion and hoping that uh, he'll get a, a briefing from the Biden administration on exactly what's going on here. Can you take us through the sort of summary of that statement and what it means and why Bernie did that? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think let's we should go back I mean, we can go back to October 7 and the statement that Senator Sanders issued then, but also going back even further. I mean, uh, Bernie is someone who has, you know, had a lot to say and has been deeply involved um, in thinking through the issues in Israel-Palestine, but particularly with regard to Gaza. That is something that he has been particularly concerned about for a long time. Um, he, he, he wrote a letter. He led a letter with 12 other uh, senators back in May 2018 Um a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo raising concerns, including citing concerns from Israeli security officials that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza was getting so dire that if something was not done, it could lead to, quote, all-out war between Gaza's factions and Israel. That is unfortunately exactly what we are seeing now. So I want to put, you know, his recent statements in that context as someone who has who has been concerned about that crisis and concerned about the issue of Palestinian rights, Israeli security, and a shared future. So I think the statement we saw, the speech, you know, in the prepared remarks, I think echoed what he's been saying. One is absolute condemnation of the atrocious Hamas attacks on October 7, which were just staggering in their savagery. Um, also making sure that there is, you know, to, to, lift, to, to note that there's a deeper context here, that acknowledging and understanding that context, of course, does not excuse or justify at all the attacks of October 7. Nothing could do that. Um, however, it's just important to note that we are, you know, in, in, the, in the sixth decade of a, of a military occupation of the Palestinian territories. Gaza has been suffering under blockade for 15 years. Um, but I think really what was important in, that, in those remarks, the questions that you noted, um, everyone is concerned, and everyone, I mean the Biden administration themselves, are very concerned that the Israeli military is preparing to undertake a, a you know ground operation in Gaza without having fully explained how they intend to achieve their goal of quote unquote ending Hamas. Um, the you know the casualties which are already high, we have some seven thousand uh, Palestinians already killed because of the, the the relentless bombardment from Israel over the past several weeks. A ground incursion will be far more violent. Uh, many thousands more Palestinians killed and many Israeli casualties as well. Um, and the and the consequences for the region and potentially for the world could be pretty, pretty catastrophic. So when considering an operation of this sort, I think Senator Sanders quite wisely uh, posed a set of really important questions to be answered 
before a you know before a you know a, an attack of this kind is is done um that's that's a very responsible thing to do in my view given that you know there are dozens of ways that this situation could further escalate can, can you the, the the last paragraph struck me which was um now is the time in Israel and the United States for us not to allow revenge and rage to dictate our policy. And he draws a connection to our response to 9-11 and the invasion mm-hmm. of Iraq. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, is really important. It also echoes some of what we heard from President Biden, um, which is to say that after 9-11, it was a massive trauma um, to the American people. It was shock, there was rage, there was grief. And in our shock, our rage, and our grief, we launched a set of military interventions, Afghanistan, then Iraq, a kind of region, a global war on terror that continues to this day, um, that turned out to be extremely destructive, that actually in many ways made the problem of terrorism worse, that were hugely expensive, that were hugely destabilizing. Um, to the Middle East region and produced a whole set of other consequences and problems that have echoed globally. Um, so I think what Senator Sanders was saying there is like, we, you know, we understand and we're in solidarity with the people of Israel, given what they faced on October 7th. However, if, if we really want to, to, you know, advance our security and make the Israeli people safer, ourselves safer, Palestinians safer, we need to pause and think through what we're actually doing here and not undertake some really, you know, some potentially catastrophic actions in this moment of, of grief and rage. Can you take us to the other side of the argument, the, the Israeli side of the argument? I saw a front page story in the New York Times yesterday about articulating what the Israeli justification is for an all-out ground war. Can you yeah. put on that hat and tell us what's going on in yeah. the mind of war planners in Israel? Sure. I mean, what they, you know, with, with, I mean, quite understandably, um, they, they want to simply go into Gaza and root out Hamas, destroy Hamas as a functioning organization, um, you know, capture or kill um, anyone involved um, in either the planning or the carrying out of the October 7th attacks um, and essentially remove Hamas as a factor. Uh, in Gaza and potentially anywhere, because Hamas also operates in the west, in areas of the West Bank, although those Palestinian areas are still um, kind of controlled within small enclaves by the Palestinian Authority. But that's that is the goal, the stated goal of, of Israel and the Israeli military. And you know, as we've learned over the past 20 plus years, and as the Israelis have learned, and others who have fought these kind of counterinsurgencies, like rooting out, you know organizations like Hamas, which in addition to being a military organization, is also a political organization. I'm not going to say that a majority of Palestinians support what Hamas did on October 7. I think they did not. I think any polling information that we do have shows that the majority of Palestinians do not support that terrorism. However, this is a movement that has existed um, for decades in Palestinian society. Um, and so to simply erase them and then whatever word Israelis are using is extremely difficult. Uh, I've been trying to get voices from Gaza on the show, and I have a contact from Egypt who helps me try to do this. And yeah. She said this, uh, I'll try to get someone to call into your show, but they have to be alive to do that. 
Uh, can you talk to us about what's going on on the ground right now and whether that statement is hyperbole? It is absolutely not hyperbole. I mean, what's happening on the ground right now is absolutely staggering. I mean, we've had weeks now of just relentless bombardment. I think I, I've seen differing accounts, but the, the amount of bombs that has been dropped on Gaza are like more than in, a, in the past two weeks are more than in a, you know, an average year in Afghanistan. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right. But just to say like the amount right. of, of, of explosive being dropped on an incredibly densely populated um, you know, strip of land, you know, 17 square miles, 2.3 million people with nowhere to go to escape um, is, is pretty mind boggling. Um, and, so and, and water, wa- water, fuel, electricity, et cetera, food are, are if, if not zero, they are severely yeah. curtailed. Right. Severely curtailed. I mean, Israelis who control so much of what goes in and out of Gaza, um, and they announced they are cutting off electricity and water supplies to Gaza, which when, you know, when, when Russia does this to areas they are attacking in Ukraine, the entire world, including the United States, has no problem recognizing it as a form of terrorism. I mean, the, chair, the, the head of the, the, the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, several years ago, called it exactly that. Um, and yet somehow, because we are close partners with Israel, people are much more hesitant to acknowledge that making war on civilians is a war crime. It is a violation of international humanitarian law. No one questions Israel's right to defend its people. No one questions Israel's obligation to respond forcefully to what we saw on October 7th, um, but the manner of that response um, has to be has to be questioned. Now I'm going to put on my political hat for a minute and recognize that Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, is before this all happened was in a political fight for his life. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to raise the issue of uh, the the the. Dogs of, oh gosh, I'm thinking back to the movie with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, but this, this benefits him politically, uh, by changing the story, unifying the government, unifying the people. I, re- I remember, uh, people were saying they would not uh, volunteer for the is IDF if they were called up, and yet now they all have. It's, it feels yeah. like Israel is unified right. in a way that they were not beforehand. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious which movie you're referring to. Is that Dog Day After? Uh, no, Wag the Dog. <laughs> Wag the Dog. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's an inter- interesting comparison. Um, dog Day After is a much better movie. <laughs> right. Um, but I will say that what I've seen, I mean, there's certainly, there's truth to what you said. I mean, an attack like this has unified the country in shock and grief and anger, quite understandably, um, over the past months we've seen as as you noted you know an ongoing set of protests and demonstrations against Netanyahu's government and their efforts to kind of kind of quote unquote reform the judiciary which others in inside Israel are calling a judicial coup um to kind of remove the obstacle uh, of the of the supreme of the Israel supreme court to kind of changes that that Netanyahu and his right wing allies want to make uh to Israel um so while I think there is, of course, unity in response to October 7th, what I've seen in the polling is that Israelis continue to blame Netanyahu and specifically for the attacks. Yeah. Um, because part of Netanyahu's argument for his prime ministership and his leadership over the years has always been the central claim is that I'm the one who keeps you safe. And that is gone now. 
that has been the key pillar of his argument for his political leadership that is now gone. Now, this is um, not just so a, think, this was not just an intelligence failure. This was a, a military failure of the highest order, correct? Oh, it was an absolute failure in every possible respect, a failure of imagination, a failure of intelligence, a failure of basic security. Um, and I think that is, he under, Netanyahu understands that once the kind of smoke clears on this, once we move through this crisis, that every finger in the country is going to be wheeling around toward him. And he would right. very much like to <laughs> help, you know, prevent that from happening, or at least I, I think, unfortunately, he does seem to have an incentive to kind of extend this thing as long as possible. I'm not sure how much that is factoring into decisions. I would say clearly it is factoring into some extent because uh, he understands once this war is over, um, his political career is over as well. Uh, in the minute we have before the break, when does this ground – there is obviously a debate going on in, within the Israeli government about whether to go into Gaza and how to go in because this is a Black Hawk Down scenario. There's going to be huge casualties and tragedy and more hostage taking and, you know, yeah. what's yeah. that debate like going on in Israel? You know, my understanding is that the military leadership actually really wants to do this operation, which is, I mean, often the military tends to be on the more kind of cautious restraint side, um, especially given what the, you know, the Israeli military has faced in previous efforts at kind of this kind of operation in Lebanon and elsewhere. But I think the anger and in some ways the kind of embarrassment to the military establishment that this happened on their watch, I think, is is feeding this this kind of you know, this feeding the sense that we, we, we need to do this. I mean, some of them actually, you know, they feel like there is no other option. I've talked to friends of mine, you know, former military, retired military, who tend to be on the more, uh, you know, the peace-oriented diplomacy side, having, ex- having experienced the realities of war themselves. I'm struck by how many of these, um, you know, pro-peace voices also agree that we don't really have any other option yeah. than going to Gaza. Um, but still, I'll just return to what I said before. Even if you say we have no choice, given the consequences, given the, all the potential for escalation and, 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 and out of control, I think you really do need to have to answer those questions that Senator Sanders posed. In okay. The speech. Uh, just yesterday, Matt Dust, the U.S. launched airstrikes against uh, sites in Syria, eastern Syria, that are used by Iran for military purposes. Can you pick that apart for us to, to explain what's happening there? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. still has forces stationed in Syria um, and ha- have done um, for years uh, as part of the, the kind of regional effort to defeat ISIS, the terrorist group also called Daesh. Um, you know, we also have forces continuing uh, in Iraq uh, still there. Um, many, if not most, were, were withdrawn in 2011. Um, but returned as part of that fight against ISIS. So you have, you know, militia groups, militant groups with various levels of a relationship with Iran, some under um, very close, you know, guidance, if not control, and some less less closely affiliated. Um, but, I mean, these kinds of strikes have happened several times over the course of Biden's presidency. I think the first was as early as, I think, maybe March of 2021, um, you know, where some of these groups have been firing rockets against U.S. positions. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, U U.S. forces uh, carried out some airstrikes against them. You know, they say that, you know, this is, quote, unquote, reestablishing deterrence against the these groups. Um, I, I would ask, how, you know, at, at what point, of, you know, when you constantly have to sort of reestablish deterrence, are you actually doing that? But we can leave that aside. But I think this is also understood as a message to Iran, which is a very strong message that President Biden has been saying since the very first day. And his first remarks after the October 7th attack was to, you know, any actor in the region, and everyone understood that the top, the top country on that list would be Iran. If you are considering trying to take advantage of this situation, don't. And they have reiterated that. They have underlined that by sending two U.S. aircraft carrier strike groups to the Mediterranean, which is sent a pretty strong signal that you are serious, but it's also a signal of how concerned the administration is with trying to contain this conflict as much as possible and not allowing it to expand uh, elsewhere into the region. Uh, Matt, can you talk to us about the U.S. role here? I, I saw that picture of uh, Biden hugging Netanyahu when he arrived for that seven-hour trip over there, a visit. And I could only imagine Biden hugging him, saying, we're with you, but then whispering in the other ear uh, later on, uh, don't overstep. Don't make the mistakes we made after 9-11. Uh, is, what, what is the Biden administration saying to the Israelis about the coming counterattack? Yeah. Well, I think they've been saying things that are actually quite similar to what Senator Sanders said yeah. in that speech, which is, tell us your plan. You're about to undertake something that is pretty huge and has and can go sideways very quickly and very catastrophically. Tell us how you hope to achieve what you say you want to achieve. And I think that the level of consultation and engagement and sort of hand-holding that's going on both at the political level and the military and intelligence level between the U.S. and Israel right now is pretty unprecedented. Um, and I would note it is not a sign of great confidence. Uh, in what Israel is, is, is planning. I mean, the, the U.S.-Israel relationship is multifaceted. It is deep at various levels. Um, but the relationship between our two militaries and intelligence communities is, is pretty close as well. And I think the, the amount of engagement and conversation that we see right now is a sign of how concerned the administration is that Israel could be undertaking something without having fully thought it through. Yeah, I mean, I, I, gosh, we just keep talking about violence, more and more violence, and we'll get to peace in the UN in a minute, but can you take us into what a ground war means? I mean, you, you go into Gaza with tanks, trucks, fuel, etc., and you knock on, you knock down doors, and there are, I mean, we see these scenes on TV, uh, whether the, and movies. Uh, how do you determine the difference between a Palestinian and a Hamas fighter? And doesn't that just bog the Israelis down in a never-ending yes. slaughter on both sides? Yes, that's right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, not just street-to-street -street fighting and not just house-to-house -house fighting. We're talking about room-to-room -room fighting. Right. In an extremely densely populated and packed urban environment. Um, that is a recipe for mass casualties on every side, whether uh, you know, the Palestinian civilians, Israeli troops, Hamas, the question of whether they are or not. Hamas, I think, unfortunately, is something that the Israeli military is probably going to spend, have less concern for in a situation like this. Right. Because their priority will be to protect 
their own their own troops and the Palestinians will pay the price as the Palestinians always pay the price for that um, and I think the kind of global political impact um, you know and the possible regional impact I mean we've already seen the regional governments and again no no love for these authoritarian undemocratic governments um, across the region but they are at least sensitive enough to the popular opinion in their countries that they have come out forcefully against the Israeli operation, even though they're no fans of Hamas either. Right. They at least recognize that their populations are really outraged by what they're seeing, and that will get worse in, in, in a grounded basis. Well, let's stay with that. Uh, how does this, at worst-case scenario, how does this spin out of control? We know Israel has a nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, what, what happens when, the, you know, you've got, you've got Russia and Ukraine over on the other side of the region world, and then you've got this. What if this spins out of control? And if so, how does it? I mean, you could see stepped up attacks from Iranian affiliated groups, um, you know, whether in Syria, Iraq. Um, you could see increased attacks out of Yemen. I mean, the Iranian government has, has a relationship with the Houthi rebels in Yemen who've been fighting a war against the Saudi-led coalition there since 2015. Um, obviously, there's a whole, there are thousands of missiles on Israel's northern border, um, which is, you know, on the Lebanese side controlled by Hezbollah, which is a very close relationship um, to, uh, to Iran. I think that has been one of the main Concerns here, you have over 100,000 Israelis who have been evacuated from the, north, from the northern part of Israel, um, precisely out of fear that, that that could happen. There have already been kind of um, attacks and exchanges of fire at the northern border, but it's, you know, it's understood that Hezbollah has just thousands of rockets and the ability to inflict enormous damage on Israel at considerable range. So if, they were, if that were to be triggered, that would create another front that is just as bad, possibly worse, as everything we've been seeing in Gaza. And and how are we moving? I noticed we're we're moving our military infrastructure around the region in terms of ships and aircraft carriers. What are we doing uh, in the U.S.? What are we doing with uh, what? We're we're moving our uh, we moved aircraft carriers around. Yes. The region and what what are we trying to achieve there? Well, I think one is is a show of force to deter actors from from escalating. Yeah. Um, another is you know sending you know troops and advisors, mainly advisors now, but that you know does become a slippery slope to Israel to um, to consult with them and help guide the response. Um, but you know we have troops stationed elsewhere in the region. Um, we have facilities elsewhere in the region. Um, to act if necessary, but also they, these 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 are targets. Um, and if there is a major attack in, in which there are major U.S. casualties, that is something which certainly could inflame U.S. public opinion and require an escalatory response from the United States. And that that's a real concern as well. Uh, is is the U.N. A, a factor here? I know that they're going to gather and maybe call for a ceasefire, but you know. What 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 power and influence does the United Nations have, if any? Well, with Israel, we have enormous influence. I mean, we we, we provide close to four billion dollars a year for in, in military funding and support and arms, including for the Iron Dome missile defense system, 
We give diplomatic and political cover in international organizations. We, you know, prevent any real condemnations um, from going forward of, you know, valid, I think, condemnations of ongoing Israeli human rights abuses in the occupied territories. Um, I think there was a quote just the other day from the Israeli Defense Minister Gallant, who was, you know, quoted as saying, well, the Americans want us to do this thing. We can't say no to the Americans. We rely on them so much. Um, So I think if the United States chooses to use it, we have enormous influence and enormous leverage um, over Israeli decision-making. It is not total. It is considerable. But that, of course, does come with its own political costs here domestically, and I think that is part of the Biden administration's calculation, even if it's not the primary one. We also have relationships with you know, with, you know, governance across the region, um, you know, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Um, but I think none of those are as close as the one with Israel. You beat me to my ne- next question, which is how do, do how does domestic politics in the United States hamper or help what the Biden administration, how they want to act over there and in this conflict? You know, what why actually better question is why do we support israel so steadfastly and for so long what's that work there take us back in history and explain that if you would sure well no i mean historically the you know the united states president truman was the first to you know recognize the state of israel and it was declared in 1948 um that relationship was close there were various times through the next decades um, that the United States showed support, but I think it was especially post-1967, the Six-Day War, but also the Yom Kippur War um, 50 years ago, which many many think that the, the attack on October 7 was, you know, partially guided by the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which, is a, which was a surprise attack by a number of um, Arab armies on Israel during the holiday that caught them by surprise, much in the same way October 7 did. But, you know, the, the Nixon administration gave enormous support to Israel at that time. And from then on, the relationship became increasingly supportive. It became very politically popular. I think the Jewish American community became much more engaged and, you know, support for Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship became a much more central point of advocacy and lobbying on the part of the Jewish American community. But I would also note there that that Israel is very popular among American evangelicals, Christians. And this is my background. I grew up in the evangelical community. Um, And there is an understanding on the part of evangelicals that the the reestablishment of the Jewish state, of the state of Israel, is part of the biblical plan um, for the second coming of of Christ. Um, You know, I'm not saying that every evangelical believes in that exactly chapter and verse. I think there is a kind of just a cultural affinity between Americans and Israelis. Um, you know, the story of Israel, the story of the Jewish people, the Old Testament, this is part of the Christian Bible as well. I think it's important to understand that. Um, that is something that does not exist for the Palestinians. It's like I was raised with the Old and New Testaments. I was not raised reading the Quran. Um, that is a narrative. Um, you know, the Palestinian narrative is something I learned later. Um, but I think for many Americans who are not deeply involved in this, I think there are so many cultural and political cues that identify with one side in this conflict far more than the other. Last question. Uh, is the, the so-called two-state solution, which we talk about all the time mm-hmm. with, a, with a homeland for Israel and a homeland for the Palestinians, 
I had a friend from Egypt say to me, why don't we just go to a one-state solution? It's called Israel, and it becomes a multicultural democracy. Uh, that's way above my pay grade, but I thought I'd ask the question, is the two-state solution dead, and do we need to move to something else? Well, I think, you know, Israeli, the Israeli government, this one and previous ones, have been really hard at work to foreclose that option through the building of settlements and occupied territories. If one understands where the settlements are yeah. in the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem, they are explicitly designed to prevent the emergence of a, an economically viable Palestinian state. It's impossible to move from one place to the other. Or it takes, you know, twice or three times as long to go from one place to the other in the Palestinian areas of the West Bank because one has to circumvent these these essentially colonies. Um, and that's part of the point. Now, there have been offers and negotiations in the past, such as Oslo um, and, you know, the Camp David um, meetings at the end of the Clinton presidency, where they were close, where, you know, people say that the Israelis made an offer and the Palestinians refused. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. That's yeah. not to absolve the Palestinian leadership of some very serious mistakes and miscalculations they've made over the years. Right. Um, but I think the bottom line here is you have 600,000 um, Jewish settlers now living in the occupied West Bank in East Jerusalem. Um, you know, what's going to happen to them to, if we want a Palestinian state to emerge? Um, I think it's it's going to be extremely difficult to remove them. It's also, frankly, inhumane. I mean, I'm no fan of the settlement project, but I do recognize we're talking about families and communities here um, and simply uprooting them um, and, you know, and, and moving them is a really ugly process. So I think there have been, there's been a lot of work that's been done amongst Israelis and Palestinians to talk through, okay, if not a two-state solution, what are other options? There's various kind of confederal solutions where people stay where they are, but they vote as part of the Palestinian state or the, the state of Israel. Um, but I think part of it is like in order to actually have those conversations and move forward on possible solutions, you need to start dialing back and ending the occupation, which is the situation we have now, whereas Palestinians in the occupied territories essentially live under an authoritarian military regime that they have no vote for that controls every aspect of their lives um, and that humiliates and brutalizes them on a daily basis. Um, that is what people need to understand about the reality of Palestinian life right now. Um, now, as to a one-state solution, you know, that is something that I think, you know, the, you know, the whole kind of foundation or the reason behind creating Israel was that the Jews needed a state, um, that the Jews, you know, had faced persecution for, for, for decades and millennia, and, you know, what was necessary to protect Jewish life and promote, you know, Jewish culture was the establishment of a Jewish state that privileged Jews over others. Um, there are various, you know, interpretations of that. There are, there are different Zionist thinkers who have written over the years and different, you know, how, how much does such a state need to privilege its Jewish citizens over its non-Jewish citizens? Um, so I, I, I don't want to, I want to make clear that there are different strains of Zionism. Some are, are kind of much more pluralistic and some much less. Unfortunately, the one that we have now, this Israeli government, their interpretation of Zionism is extremely exclusionary. Um, that's, that's helpful. Still, yeah. Excuse me. That's that's helpful. That's a that yeah. gives us a history that and background that. Yeah, but I do think you will. You know, I think a lot of of of, of Jewish Israelis that still there's very little support for the idea of just one state. 
with every, you know, with equal rights for all. Although I think, you know, we have to look at that possibility too. Um, and there are certainly some Jewish Israelis who are thinking about that. It's like, can we achieve the goals of Zionism um, while in a, you know, one state with equal rights for all situations? So, I mean, again, I think there's some very serious thinking being done about all these things. It's an issue for serious people, and uh, with with we hope that serious people are going to stay engaged so we can find a way through this. Matt Duss, former senior policy advisor, foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders, executive vice president of the Center for International Policy in Washington. Thank you so much for taking us through this. All right. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Okay. Thank you. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's WDEV. If you'd like to call in, my number is 244-1777. I know that first hour is serious and not uplifting, but uh, it's informative as heck. And uh, I am learning so much by uh, having these experts on the show. That guy, Matt Duss, was, uh, he has been marinating in this issue for decades. And uh, as I said, he was a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. He, uh, he's been quite critical of sort of conventional American uh, support of, you know, what he sometimes calls sort of blind support of Israeli uh, treatment of the Palestinians in that area. But he brings a, uh, he brings a, a real fresh perspective on what's going on over there. My, the, the, the big issue that is not being talked about, I think, uh, is what happens when Israel goes in and, quote, roots out Hamas. Uh, you know, the Saudi Arabians have a, have a way of doing this. They just go in and pave the place with bulldozers. And I just, uh, I, I just don't know. I, 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 I my fear is there's going to be death and tragedy on both sides. Israeli soldiers are going to be sitting ducks. I hate to, I always bring this back to Hollywood movies, but it's, it's something that we've seen and easy to understand. You watch the movie Black Hawk Down, a great film, and it really illustrates the, the difficulty of, it's not, like World War II, you know, jumping over the trench and firing at Germans or Japanese and, or, and them firing back at us. It's, it's, it, this is, as he said, room to room fighting. Uh, knocking down a door in a house, there's going to be three children in front of you. Uh, the adults are in the back kitchen hiding and you don't know who's who and it's dark. And these aren't you know, these are these are volunteers in the Israeli Defense Forces that will be call, that have been called up. These are uh, sometimes kids, uh, 18 to 35 years old. Who knows what they're going to encounter? So, uh, again, uh, 2441777. We'll try to get to some calls later in the show about this. Uh, we we are eager to uh, get your input. And uh, I, I'm trying very hard to get uh, the, the point of view from the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli uh, reaction to this attack from Hamas, from officials. 
We'll try to do that uh, next week and the week after. Uh, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back with Bob Nay in Washington to talk about this and more. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Thank you.